Hello and welcome to the VSuit Podcast, the audio-only virtualization podcast that hasn't jumped on the Olympic bandwagon yet. Joining us for this 25th episode of the show are an old guest and a new one. We're welcoming Mike Laverick back and saying hi in our own slightly inappropriate way to Barry Coombs for a chat about things with an end-user focus. Mike and Barry, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Hi there. Hi, nice, nice to have you uh, on again, Mike, and uh, nice, nice to have you on for the first time, Barry. Um, Thank you very much. Known, known you for a while through the, uh, the VMware user groups in London, um, and well, you, you made it to your first VMworld back in uh, Copenhagen last last October, as I as I recall. Yeah, definitely a really good experience, and looking forward to heading to Barcelona this year. Excellent, excellent. So, um, is anyone? making it out to San Francisco because again all, all you see on Twitter is people that are saying yeah I'm going and people that are grumbling in a slightly jealous way that they're not myself being in that latter no I'm not lucky enough are you lucky enough Mike you yeah I, I am I was fortunate enough to get a uh, session approved with um, a topic of site recovery manager this year so I'll, I'll be going across to uh, San Francisco to uh, deliver that although I'm not sure whether I uh, this session will be approved for Copen- uh, for um, Barcelona, but I will be there come hell or high water. Is is that that uh, going to be that you're there in your official corporate role? Well, funny enough, the actual uh, session was applied for and approved when I was still uh, independent. So, as far as I'm concerned, I'll be delivering it from an independent stance because that's how the original application was made. Right. So for, for anyone that uh, might have missed out, Mike has finally answered the call from the mothership, uh, <laughs> and uh, will be will be joining uh, joining well has joined VMware. In fact, this I is have joined VMware indeed. Second or th- third day? It's the third day. <laughs> you probably got a lot of work done yet already. Then I guess. Yeah, you know, you've done done all the important things. Found out where the loos are. Uh, got me email. Yep. Got on the corporate Facebook. <laughs> and you will transfer to Palo Alto, I, I read somewhere? Yeah, because of the visa situation, um, I will be based in uh, EMEA for the first year, and then uh, sort of this time next year is, is probably when um, I will be relocating to sunny California. The English are pretty much invading California, I guess, now with Alan being there already. So Yeah, Alan. I think Alan Renouf says we're going to take the country back one, one VMware higher at a time. <laughs> it, Alan is making us all very jealous at the moment, posting pictures of avoiding uh, over stateside at the moment. Yeah. Ah, so, okay, moving to the US should be a pretty uh, decent adventure, I guess. But it's an uh, easy de- decision to decide to relocate, or was that something you had to think about? No, it was a very easy decision. Um, first of all, the role is such a good one, it would be a shame to not take it simply because of geography and to do the role well you do really need to be in the team you know where where the decisions are being made um trying to do that remotely across the the time zone differences can be trying at best as you as you know when you escalate something or you need something done you have to factor in the eight hour difference but uh, from a personal level um myself and my partner carmel were were at a stage where we're we're free to move because our, our, our children have sort of fled the list a little bit and they're carving out their own careers. So it was a good time for us to go because we're, we're not having to tuck them in bed each night. 
Yeah, I've got a few years left, but my kids are old enough now, so I I don't know what I'm going to do in five years, but I might be might be doing something. Who knows? It, it would be interesting to to work somewhere else than Norway in a in a few years' time, I guess. So. Very true. Very true. Um, so, um, main main reason we've uh, got you guys on the show uh, is is to do a little bit of a shameless plug. Um, Actually, pretty much everyone, everyone uh, on on the recording tonight, I think, apart from Ed, has been involved in this in some small way. Um, Mike, if you want to sort of take it take it away and explain the reason for your shameless plug. Ah, shameless plug. We have a new book, and it's called "Building uh, End Using Computing Solutions with VMware View." The reason I think we should have bought a few more ty- more words in that title. <laughs> yeah. Barry wanted a, a VMware view reference in, and I wanted an end user computing reference in, so we ended up with an extremely long title, uh, a bit like the sublight, subtitle to Dr. Strangelove, I think. But uh, the project got started. I just got to the end of uh, finishing an SRM book, and Barry approached me to, to ask whether I would be happy to see him update my old 4.5 guide to 4.6, and the whole thing kind of snowballed from there, really. Um, and we, we found ourselves at the end of the project with Teradici, Bitdefender, VShield, Dinat Factory, and Horizon in there alongside uh, VMware View. So, uh, like a lot of these book projects, they grow and grow uh, out of all control sometimes, but we, we managed to finally put it to bed. It was certainly a long project. Uh, I think we started the journey on it over. 18 months ago and then uh, struggled to keep ahead of uh, VMware's releases. Each time we're nearing completion, VMware then released an update, which uh, meant going from content to the book and starting again from scratch, basically. And I think it's fair to say that the, the good side of that is it bought us more time to do more review work, but it also bought us more time to add just those little bit of extras um, along the way. And um, I guess um, the 5.1 release what that dropped what six or seven weeks ago so it has meant that we've released something which is as current and up-to-date as as we can yeah it's it's hard to keep uh i guess i i haven't done it myself but i, I guess it's hard to keep something like that it's it's what 550 pages or something and and then it takes a lot of time to write all of that and review it and have everything set up for printing and distribution and everything and then all of a sudden, a new version emerges during your kind of development cycle of the book. Sure. It's, it's, it's hard to keep all of that in, in place and get something that's still relevant out there, I guess. Definitely. The, the biggest problem I found is all of the small little updates happen, certainly between 5 and 5.1. VMware were kind enough to uh, introduce a user interface which meant that near enough every single screenshot in the book was then outdated. <laughs> um, probably a bit of my OCD more than anything else that I, I was determined, certainly in the chapters that I was reviewing, I was going to retake every screenshot because some icon had changed from being a circle to a square, um, and I wanted the latest one. But, um, yeah, it, it meant that you had to recreate every single step between updates, make sure it hadn't changed in some small way. And I think I would have to say that I probably wouldn't have started on this project without Barry coming to me and saying he he wanted to do it because I just got off the back of the SRM book and felt, you know, I need to take a break. But it has helped greatly that to have two authors and being able to split that content 50-50, it it meant for me I didn't feel I had the whole of Everest to conquer on my own. I had 
I had somebody beside me uh, willing me along the way, um, which made a big difference for me. And likewise, I, mean, I, I first started off um, attempting the, the 5, 4.5 upgrade to 4.6 on my own, um, and if it had been released in that state, it would have just been an uplift, a, a change of direction. But um, with working with Mike, both of us have managed to add a lot more content to the book that hopefully made them be uh, more relevant to a lot more people. And I think we probably should, the other thing we guess we should mention is, is that this is a, a not-for-profit venture. All the royalties generated by the sale of the book, either in ebook format or in um, paperback, are going to be donated to UNICEF. So it's for a good cause, as well as helping people in the community learn more about the way um, VMware technologies fit together and, and the kind of pointing towards the new vision of end-user computing rather than purely just being about virtual desktops. So, um, I mean, I know one of the challenges that you had with the, the SRM book, Mike, was um, building a test environment for it because you actually had to have some replicated sound technology. It led you to all sorts of fun and games and adventures with um, co-location and you know, being white van man for a day. Um, was, was it easier to, to reproduce your test hardware and lab setup for the end user computing book in a somewhat uh, slimmed down lab? Um, yes and no. I um, I kept the lab going uh, after the SRM book. I must admit um, I had to shut down a lot of my SRM environment, the virtual machines that back it in order to free up uh, memory resources. Um, one of the things I ended up doing midway through uh, the book was taking my home lab and my co-location lab, because I had two labs, <laughs> not content with one, I had two, and merging those two together um, just to kind of boost up the amount of server resources I had, um, which made my life a little bit more easier because, you know, once you've got uh, the V-Shield appliance up and its uh, components on each of the ESX hosts, I had two big IP uh, F5 load balancers in a virtual machine running there, two connection servers, two security servers, domain controllers, you know, the list goes on and on of... Uh, background infrastructure VMs. I needed that extra boost of of server hardware to make sure I had a decent sized desktop pool to kind of work with at the same time. And then from, from my point of view, when I initially started doing this, I was trying to run on one sort of HP micro server, one ML115 and an iAmiga NAS. Um, and you find yourself to roll out some link clone pools and it taking an hour just to do the initial replica, which just means that the limited time that I did have between my day job to try and uh, work on content was very, very difficult. Um, certainly some access to some proper kit and some SSDs certainly helped along the way. Uh, so, Mike, did this mean that your, your legendary my ass was, uh, was not actually for hire at the time? <laughs> yes, but I must admit I wasn't uh, overwhelmed with requests for Mike's infrastructure as a service. Uh, so my, my ass wasn't oversubscribed at the time, so it was quite easy to sort of uh, close the door on it. Uh, I did have one person use my ass uh, who subsequently never paid uh, <laughs> use it. Um, so I think that idea more or less was, uh, you know how every startup has 10 great ideas? Well, my ass probably wasn't one of them for me, but uh, at least the resources I had at my beck and call I could reuse elsewhere in, in, the, in the lab environment. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, it's obviously important to, to make best utilisation of that uh, that particular infrastructure. Um, so yeah, I've just had some fun and games myself. I've uh, had a day off today, and I've been—I spent it building a white box server. Um, but it's amazing that how easy 
um, and relatively cheap. Um, you can build a white box for. I mean, this cost me about nine hundred pounds, and I've gone kind of all in and thirty-two gig of RAM and a couple of SSDs and a couple of SATA drives as well. Um, and it's small and relatively silent. I'm uh, I'm pretty impressed so far. Um, Chris, yes. did you use any resources to help you choose components for that white uh, white box? That's something that's always put me off when trying to do sort of a white box, uh, knowing the correct components to pick. Uh, well, because it's not a... I'm actually going to be running um, Windows Server 2012 on it. Um, I don't have to um, sort of have the, you know, the, the fun and games of the VMware HCL to try and stick to. Um, is, so that, is that like some other hypervisor? Well, it's it's a different operating system, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I've got got some certifications to do, and I need some some more permanent hardware to run System Center off, which is some some other other software. Um, you probably need thirty two gig to run that, I guess. <laughs> well, it's got a, it, there's a fair amount of components to it, um, and memory's relatively cheap these days. Uh, but yeah, I, I just kind of looked at what's around for a relatively powerful gaming rig um, and subtracted the graphics from it, so something with plenty of memory, plenty of um, a reasonably powerful CPU. Um, I guess the, the main thing was was uh, was motherboard um, and memory choice, because I think you can now get consumer-grade motherboards that will take 64 gig of memory, uh, but the CPUs for them are really expensive. So I kind of went for a board that'll take 32 gig max, and uh, but it was a lot cheaper. It kind of worked out pretty well, I think. Cool. One of the things I, I really liked about the uh, the book was the uh, the community review aspect. Um, you know, te- getting a technical review on these things can obviously take quite some time. And from uh, comments we've had from previous authors, is that that review stage can be fairly lengthy, and the you know the associated rewrites with it. And one of the things that you guys did was farm that out to the, the community, and specifically the VExpert community. Um, I myself was able to do a, a chapter review while stuck at an airport, waiting, waiting for a flight that was delayed. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know, you know a, job, a job shared is a job halved, and I think you know, you're certainly uh, more than halved the, the amount of work needed. Definitely. I think from that point of view, it's either yourself, Chris, or Christian, one of you had the award for returning the chapter the quickest. It was something like within uh, half an hour of receiving back in our uh, folder with actually some edits on it. So it wasn't just a, yeah, that looks cool. It was uh, actually some constructive uh, elements on it. So uh, thank you very much for the, the help from all the community. But we, we initially opened up the review process to VMware, and there we had some really good feedback from several at VMware. Um, certainly Peter Von Oven was very, very um, helpful in app chapters and reviewing nearly half of the book himself. Um, he's one of the EMEA guys in there. But I, th- I think what it showed for me is the potential of a, a community kind of project. And it's, Mike and I have toyed with the idea of that potentially uh, VMWareView.net and EndUserComputing.net, whatever that is, maybe turning the book into a community project where uh, a team of people working on the content and maybe even turning it into some kind of Wikipedia-style um, solution or something like that. So a, mu- a much more uh, living content than the, uh, 
you know, obviously a, a printed a printed book is by its its very uh, nature not necessarily alive. But a, uh, I wonder if you would publish something like that via Kindle. Um, does Kindle support a process of doing updates to a book? Could you release a version of a book every week, and it would kind of overwrite and update the book with the latest information? Mike probably has a bit more experience on it uh, than me, but I believe from the conversations I've had with Mike, uh, the actual process to get a book onto the Apple uh, or an iPad or, or something like that seems to be at least the way that we're trying to do it with Writerhood and then trying to get it into some kind of Kindle or iPad format. There seems to be more stringent rules in doing that than actually getting it printed. So um, potentially it might end up with some uh, Wikipedia solution or something like that, I would guess. Yeah, just to follow through on that, I mean, I didn't wasn't really having a go at Amazon or uh, Apple for how stringent that is. Um, if you think about it, a ebook can contain links, and those links could take you almost anywhere. So I think uh, both Apple and Amazon are concerned to make sure that you know ebooks don't become the next form of trojan to the device that you've got on your hand. Uh, certainly, PDFs are a little bit more tolerant of of the kind of formats that you that you can distribute in. But uh, I think um, I'm more drawn to the kind of Wikipedia approach. Um, the idea is to seed out an initial wiki with this content so there is something at least for people to, to visit and see. Um, but then allowing the community to revise and improve that. Uh, the only downside I see of kind of crowdsourced content is the potential for the kind of vision to be diluted a little bit because even with even with two writers we had to work quite closely together to make sure that the whole thing fitted together as a as a whole end to end um, and of course once you've got web content in a wikipedia format people can dive in and navigate around that in any in any format so you kind of lose the kind of linearity and the narrative that you're trying to build up um, and that's that's quite important i think in an IT book where you may have service dependencies and other dependencies um, where A must follow B before C uh, for it all to, to hang together. And that's that's something that you get uh, in a kind of chapter-by-chapter -chapter process. Definitely. I, feel, I think this process is definitely going to take a, a lot of thought to be able to get it into a solution that works correctly. And I'm quite sure that might not even be an, an off-the-shelf off solution be able to get it out in that correct way we can make sure that vision is still uh, put across in a different kind of format and I guess at the, at the heart of this is the recognition that you know, I think in the UK uh, just the other day they announced that more than 50% of books are now delivered uh, digitally but also even when you do did, uh, deliver a, a book digitally um, there is a process to go through for updating and maintaining it, which is something more than just uploading the latest version of the file and having it converted. Um, and I think one of the nice things about a kind of wiki approach is if you want to change something and update it, it's very quick to do. And that means you can keep the, the content up to date and fresh, as you were uh, saying earlier. Um, I guess what's probably lost there is the ability to do peer reviews Although I understand the wiki kind of process has the ability to have like uh, sources and citations. But um, going back to the original question about the reviewers, yeah, um, we had VMware review it. Me and Barry reviewed each other's material. And then we farmed it out to the community. Um, so there was 27 chapters and 27 reviewers. Uh, and at the late state, uh, 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 Chris came through and 
and managed to write as a, an excellent foreword for the beginning of the book. So it all sort of came together in the last week or two, which is, you know, something that would never happen with conventional publishing. Uh, an author finishes writing one month and they might not see that book service for another six. So even like the self-publishing route that we've gone through is a very quick to market approach. That was, that, that was a lot of fun to do. Um, the forward thing was kind of, that, that question kind of came out of the blue, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, asking if I could, I could write the forward for the, for the book. Uh, that being said, it, it, that's actually something I, I've mentioned to other people before, uh, not online really, but family members and stuff, that I really wanted to do that at some point, write a forward to some kind of uh, virtualization-related book that came out. And all of a sudden, you might send me an email asking if I would do that. So of course, I jumped on the opportunity to do that as soon as I could. And I, I, I had to do it quickly as well, because I was leaving for my holidays as well, uh, about a week later or something. So that's a big honor to be asked, and I was really, really happy to do it. That's it. And I think you've done an excellent job there. I mean, just looking for it now, I mean, you've really kind of summed up the, the feel of um, what people are going to be considering and why they're going to be picking up the book kind of thing. Thanks. I kind of want to go back to the kind of wiki thing, uh, to be honest, because a lot of open source projects uh, use wikis to document their software and how to document and whatever, and it works for them. I, I used to be a part of a... a, a open source uh, photo gallery uh, PHP application, web application. But we transferred all our documentation into a wiki while I was using, uh, working on it. And it, it's, a, it's a really nice format to work in and have a lot of contributors actually go in and do stuff. But it also is, as you mentioned, uh, kind of a, a route to complete chaos if no one actually takes control over it, the actual process of changing stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, the reason why Wikipedia kind of works is that they have a lot of people doing their views and a lot of people doing uh, their own kind of policing of the content. And if you don't have that, you might end up with a lot of spam, a lot of weird content that you you aren't really sure if it's accurate or not, and you're going to spend a lot of, lot of time trying to review all of the information you get. Definitely. I, I think from the perspective, if this is going to end up being put into some kind of community project, it is going to have to be important. I don't know whether it has to be a fence community. The, the, there's a team of us that are working on it to review the content using those kind of systems to be able to do it with then allowing the public to suggest changes, certainly something that I don't think we can lose control of. I mean, a lot of work, a lot of hours has gone in to create the content. We want to make sure that it was still a, an accurate resource and a resource that people could trust rather than becoming that kind of situation where you may go onto a, a wiki and wonder reading is accurate or someone having a laugh or someone just posting up something because they had some spare time. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of things to consider there, but of course if you divide it up into uh, into teams that are kind of responsible for the different areas and, and have some kind of review process before it actually gets published. It's, it's, it might be something that's interesting for, for people to contribute in as long as you're able to kind of weed out all the weird stuff that you're bound to be receiving at some point. Definitely. Uh, but that, that also means that if you could 
create some kind of distributed team that works on a on a topic or even a, on a given given book. This could in turn turn into something that produces more and more content in different areas as well. And it might might be interesting for a lot of lot of people to kind of start writing something and have some someone else pick up something. And it might not be end user end user computing related at all. You could have different projects doing stuff like this. I mean, that's certainly something we flashed on. I mean, obviously, I'll, I'll let Mike take over. But from that perspective, Mike has a lot of content. So if maybe we can prove um, things that we've done with the end user thing, it maybe would open us up to doing something else in the future, or certainly Mike doing something else in the future. Sure. I mean, the other thing to consider with the book is, with any book, you have to sort of set a personal deadline, especially with something like this particular one, because we all know that there are new end-using computing initiatives on their way, things like Octopus and AppBlast. And we had to, you know, reach a point where we go, well, you know, these things aren't ready, they're, they're still in beta, so we're going to have to go with what we've got. But in a, in a very short time... You know, people will be asking, what about the one over acquisition that was made just a few weeks ago? Are you going to be including that? And the thing with any book, especially one that's as broad as an end using computing book, is it can turn into like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, although somebody told me the other day they've stopped doing that. Um, but uh, when do you stop? When, and uh, when you get to the end, do you not begin again because uh, something else is, has moved along? Um, I, I, for me, the SRM books that I've written have been quite soft and contained, whereas this book was much more like writing the, the VI3 and the vSphere 4 book. It was a mammoth task where you've got many different technologies that all have their own different product uh, release cycles. I think I rewrote the F5 load balancing chapter about three or four times within its lifetime as, as new versions of the iApp within uh, F5 came out and the screen grabs changed again. So you know, it's not just VMware, it's other vendors' uh, cycles of product releases that we needed to, to shoe in as well. Although yeah. the rate that VMware's going, they'll all be VMware's uh, product releases because they'll have acquired everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if you can stick it in the data center, yeah. They, they want the whole stack, I think, but we'll see how that works out in the end. But it, it's interesting to see what, what they're picking up and how... It's going to be interesting to see how they're going to tie everything together in the end. Definitely, and I think we're seeing a lot of people. I mean, obviously, Dell have been acquiring things like uh, like nobody's business, and then Oracle out of the blue uh, acquired Zego the other day, which wasn't something I was expecting to see. So there's certainly a lot of it happening at the moment. Yeah. Not to go off the topic too much, but what did people make of the Oracle Zego acquisition? <clears throat> Well, I'm definitely I could, confused. Yeah, I could definitely see it happening. I mean, I, we've been um, a, a reseller where I work for a while, and I was waiting them, for them to be acquired because I think it's very technology, but I, I certainly didn't think uh, uh, Oracle would be. Um, I mean, the whole point ago was that it was open to any vendor. Um, if you've got some HP and you've got some Dell and you've got some Intel, you can hook it all up together with the Zego. And then you see the, the marketing documents that are coming out for all, which has got it firmly planted in the middle of the Oracle stack, which is a little bit strange. Also, without being too incorrect, I decided I would probably stop looking at the product after, after Oracle purchased it. But <laughs> it's, just, it's just my experience with Oracle. 
product. Nah, it's not just you, man. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> That's rather sad, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, that kind of—I'm I, not—I don't think me and Ed are the only ones thinking the same thing. I was saying, okay, they bought Seagull. Um, they're gone. Now what? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I, there's something about the uh, the Oracle way of things that I don't think. Uh, well, it, it doesn't appeal to me. To put it that way. They don't seem to have been doing themselves many favors in that area. Um, we'll wait and see what they do with Zigo, but yeah, yeah. I'm I'm guessing we'll see a lot of, uh, ho or, or hopefully we'll see Paul Maritz uh, talk about the uh, and Scott Harold, of course, uh, talk about the software-driven uh, data center thing um, on at VMworld and see what how they. Uh, hopefully, they'll outline how all of these things they're acquiring are going to fit into the picture. I guess, but. Was, was I'm, that I'm Scott Herald or Scott Herod? Herod. Herod. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scott Herald's working at Dell now. <laughs> yeah. That's it. I mean, it's certainly uh, changing times. We're, we're not talking about the hypervisor, and uh, we're maybe not even just talking about the cloud now. We're talking about everything. So, um, yeah. It, it definitely needs to be defined, and something that they've been talking about now more and more is about connecting that together to make it not just a bunch of different products but one overall solution so we'll start to see how that transpires I guess yeah I mean I, I still think there's a danger to having the one monolithic product because there's presumably so many different for want of a better term personalities of code um, and code that's written in different platforms and frameworks that you're, you're kind of trying to mix oil and water in certain ones and yeah, it's fine as long as you keep shaking it, but the second you leave it alone, it's going to separate off again. Yeah. Well, there's always been this long debate in our industry about whether you assemble a best-of-breed solution or whether you go for the one throat to choke, and I doubt very much whether that debate will change very much in the next decade. I think that, that debate will carry on and run and run throughout our careers. Yeah, but this is seeing the same thing in the hardware, hardware part of things as well, you know, with VCE and whatever. So there's, you can pick and choose and you can go for a single stack from a single vendor if you want to. Um, or presumably a, a single vendor, even if it's more than one vendor in the back end of things. But it's, uh, I think you'll, you'll still be able to pick and choose if you want to. Uh, and then you can just go all in and say, okay, with. I'm going to do whatever VMware or Microsoft or whatever is is uh, they, I'm going for the complete solution they have and that's it. So it's uh, it, it'll be up to a lot of uh, other factors than just which which vendor is uh, offering it to you, I guess. Sure, and I think customers are savvy enough that they look at the storefront of these different vendors and they do look at different technologies and go that seems like a good fit for us. That product doesn't seem to be something that we really need. So I think all the vendors are really trying to fill out their storefront with a rich array of different technologies and then advertise that to customers and say, come one, come on. But I, I don't imagine that any of these companies think that everybody's going to buy absolutely everything from them because it's such a, a broad product range that would be almost impossible. 
Definitely. I think that's something also, hopefully, they're keeping in their mind and they're remembering that people want this interoperability between different product suites. They want uh, X hardware solution to still be able to function with X software solution. Um, and if we start to that and everything starts to get siphoned, it, I think it's going to be a very sad day in the industry. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you say, there's these various coalitions that come together like VCE, but you've also got ones like Canopy, which is... VCA, <laughs> so yeah. VMware, uh, EMC, and, and Atos. So this time they've kind of cut out the, the Cisco bit, um, partnered directly with, well, Atos are a services-based company, aren't they? So um, they don't have to hire a whole team of services people like like VCE have done, because um, presumably they can provide the actual the people, you know, pre-rolled. Um, and again, is it is this just sort of a in the the early days of, of VCE? There was all sorts of grumblings from the channel about VMware competing with its partners. Um, but uh, you know, are these things are they essentially all sort of rather um, going to go in on themselves because they just the way the way they're competing, everyone sort of seems to be competing inside the same pool, which is only going to get smaller. Indeed. I mean, I think it all just also depends on who you're pushing it into. If you're pushing it into somebody that's got a massive uh, data center, um, but they've got no actual infrastructure, it, it makes sense for, for things like the vBlock and those kind of solutions because you just need to get in compute. Uh, you need to wheel it in and get off of it. But then for the, the people that have already got fully populated, because they're already delivering business uh, critical solutions, does it make sense for them to be running those with a, an all-in-one stack? I'm not sure. Well, in, in, in the end, everyone's peeing in the same pool anyway, so we'll see. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who gets noticed, I guess. I guess what VMware is kind of banking on is whatever way you choose to do it, whether you go for a reference architecture model because you feel more comfortable with that, or you go for something like a vBlock or a vStar, the consistent component that's there all the time is the, the VMware VC, uh, vSphere layer. Um, so, I mean, the way I think VMware has approached it is to partner with as many different uh, vendors as possible um, and try and remain neutral when it comes to that partnership. So, I guess, it, you know, everybody's always talked about the VMware and EMC alliance, but anybody who's been involved in the VMware community for a while knows that VMware is, you know, equally close to the NetApps and the, the HPs of the world because it doesn't really suit VMware to overly uh, you know, be in the back pockets of one particular OEM over another. Well, the thing is, is that, well, yeah, VMware's technically, uh, EMC's technically the mothership for, for VMware, so even if VMware makes some money off a of NetApp, it all still goes into EMC's pocket at the end of the day. Yeah. But we're going to have this discussion again when, uh, when the public... Uh, cloud VMware public cloud goes live anyway. Uh, as soon as they're they're going to be competing with their own vCloud providers and whatever, but it's the same discussion all over again, uh, basically. Uh, so it, it it happens, and and of course VMware is going to try to get in get all the action it can. It's the same as everyone else. All of us try to do that anyway. So that's just how it works. Of course, I couldn't possibly comment on something that hasn't been made public or even endorsed by VMware yet. Oh, of course not. <laughs> it's 
going to say, it's only your third day, Mike. Don't mark yes. yourself already. Yes, <laughs> um, one must be very careful on one's third day with a new employer. I didn't bite. Ow. Oh. <laughs> Please be more subtle next time on that one. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting. Crying, I guess. Um, obviously, with the the subject of the book being end user computing, has anybody got any particular experiences with um, end user computing related topics? Are you doing looking at VDI, bit of VDI, whether it's VMware, Citrix, or anything like that? I'm I'm in the middle of uh, implementing a, a view five point one uh, solution for a customer right now, so so I'm I'm kind of we're in the midst of it uh, at the moment, which. Uh, Kind of makes it a lot of fun to show them a book I've written the forward to, to be honest. But uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting. We're moving our customer from Citrix to 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 View five point one, and moving to new hosts and everything. And it's uh, it's uh, it seems to be shaping up really well. Fantastic. Can I ask what's made the customer decide to move away from Citrix to VMware? Uh, basically because they weren't happy with the performance of the Citrix uh, solution. But then again, they could have improved the uh, Citrix uh, performance by actually investing in new hardware anyway. Uh, but they were kind of looking into having... Uh, they wanted a, a more bigger... I don't know how to put this. They, they wanted to distribute the load between several servers and use virtualization in a way that they are used to on the, on the server side. So that kind of made the, uh, the upsell of view kind of made it easier to, to change that and rather than upgrade the hardware and upgrade the uh, Zendesk graph installation. Definitely. We've had a, a number of customers that have been doing sort of very similar. They're, they don't mind Citrix. Maybe they've got already got an investment in ZenApp, and they're very aggressive about switching their ZenApp life to Zen Desktop. But they've chosen VMware vSphere as their chosen hypervisor, and they want to push alongside their, their desktops. Um, and that upsell to be able to sell uh, the vSphere for desktop licensing kind of will push it over the edge and really does emphasize uh, VMware View as a strong competitor at that point. Um, and also, I think sort of, uh, for for me personally, use, uh, ease of use seems to be a little bit easier in an IT department that's full of general practitioners rather than necessarily product specialists. Yeah, this particular customer doesn't really have their own IT department, so they're kind of uh, using consultants anyway for most things. Uh, but another thing they're they're really really looking into or interested in, in uh, getting a lot of their application uh, applications out on, on iPads and whatever, and, and doing that with Vue is an easy task to do. Uh, ad admittedly, you could do that with Citrix solutions as well, but but, but again, they, they trust the, the hypervisor, so that's probably the biggest, biggest point uh, for them. Changing from the Citrix solution to 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 view instead. Yeah, you can you can as someone who has experience with with this stuff in Citrix. Yeah, you can do that with the iPads and iPhones and, and whatever tablet devices, but it does require a bit more configuration from my perspective than View does. And it's such a big thing. I mean, I go into a lot of customer meetings about six months ago, generally around uh, shared storage and servitization. Um, and in a lot of those meetings, it was kind of ended with, do you have a solution so we can roll out in the business? So um, it's definitely a growing market, and 
I think we do have Acer today with the likes of Zen Desktop and uh, uh, View on an iPad, but it's interesting to see what's around the corner and how they're really going to be adopted to make those applications more for iPad-type devices without them necessarily having an iPad-specific version. I think what's interesting about this is the logic behind that sort of thinking is, is sometimes different from customer to customer. So I sometimes meet customers who, who want to do virtual desktop because they've got people bringing their own devices in and they don't know how to deal with them. And then some people are saying, well, the reason we want uh, to do virtual desktops is that we would like to enable and allow people to, to do bring your own device. So in some cases, it's a response to something that's happened already. And other times it's seen as we need to do this before it happens. So it's quite odd sometimes to bring your own device like agenda is the the tail that wags the dog and sometimes it's the dog that wags the tail and uh, i don't really have a problem with customers doing it either way but i think it's important that they know themselves why are we doing this are we doing this in a reactive way are we doing this because we want to be there ahead of the curve before um, our end users start bringing these things in and, and demanding access to the corporate network through them so it's it's, it's, a, it's a case of you know is this finally the year of vdi i mean <laughs> well, we we definitely got some more buzzwords coming along, so yeah, that might be an indication. I, I, I think we're seeing a, a bit of growth in VDI, but I don't think we're ever ever going to have the year. I it's something that's getting uh, adopted more now than ever in my experience with my customers. But we're not we're not seeing a mass shift of people coming to us saying we must have VDI kind of thing. It's, yeah. it's funny. I think I saw some analyst uh, work a, a couple of months ago that said that the year of the desktop wasn't going to be 2013, but 2014. So we have progressed a little bit. It's not this year or <laughs> next year, but it's the well, year, the year of the desktop. <laughs> but I think um, what I was saying, I was doing a presentation when I was in the US about VDI just a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying, you know, uh, think, uh, act tactically, but think strategically. And what I meant by that was think of places where VDI is, is a good play, but then budget for or allow for it to become really popular. So you might pick out a certain set of users for whom virtual desktops is a good fit. If they really like it, people might turn around and say, I want one too. And then you start wondering, well, have we actually designed this thing for scale? So I think you've got to kind of look at good usage cases, but also at the same time invest some effort into your proof of concept to make sure that if it goes from 200 to 500 to 1,000, you can actually accommodate that kind of growth. Um, whereas what I've seen with a lot of VDI projects is they, because they're not designed for scale, when they, are become, when they do become popular, you can't actually deliver the service that users are demanding. And, and I think that's um, a very good input, uh, important point. It's about building foundations to make sure that you're able to deliver what you need to be able to deliver. And when uh, we were focusing on the design chapter, which could have very easily become a book all of its own, it was all about understanding what your users are actually and what they need to be able to get for the system, what their pain points are today. So when you're then designing that ICE solution, it's going to work how they need it to work. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Even if, you, if you're not able to... Uh, forecast the uh, kind of uh, users you'll have in say a year or three or whatever uh, it's important that you actually know how well your solution will scale by that I mean if you have 100 users today you should 
sit down and, and, and figure out, okay, if we're, the current solution will actually support 200. So if we get 300 all of a sudden, we need to do something and plan accordingly and then budget accordingly as well and, and let management know that, okay, there's, uh, we, with the current investment we've done, we can support this amount of users on the existing solution. If it uh, expands uh, further than that, we actually need to invest some more into either licensing or hardware or whatever. But it's important to actually know where the uh, where your kind of roof is in in the existing uh, installation or the installation you do after a proof of concept. Sure. Okay. Nice. I think we are. I think we are heading forward to a more kind of blended solution where virtual desktops is just one of many different ways of delivering an application to users. And I think that's actually very exciting and makes the job of, of doing uh, end-using computing interesting because you'll have all these different tools in your kit bag and you'll have to look at the different types of users and go, well, with this user, they're better off with a laptop. But what we'll do is um, thin install, thin out a lot of the applications and only have a, you know, the most popular applications installed. Other users might be able to get away with a virtual desktop. Some people might want to come through a portal like Horizon um, or even just use something like the ThinApp Factory's ThinApp store. And that's a much more kind of creative kind of a way of doing it that you, you know, you're going to offer the end user all these different access mechanisms. And rather than saying there's just one and you just choose it, the only color you can have is black, we'll be saying to the user, well, here's all these different methods. You just pick the one that suits you. Um, a much more kind of flexible way of, of looking at things, which is quite different from a kind of desktop only environment. But does that rely on the business uh, or the user being mature enough to know which solution to pick? Well, because I think maybe the, way, the direction that we're heading is that users are increasingly more sophisticated and they naturally gravitate to a particular way of working. Um, I guess that doesn't apply to a kind of more mature, can I say, generation of users. Um, but certainly people my age and younger... They're used to consuming their applications the way they want them, not the way corporate IT dictates. I guess the difficult thing is supporting and maintaining all these different access mechanisms is going to be seen by some as an extra workload, but we are actually trying to deliver more choice to end users rather than a, a one-size-fits-all. So, But I, I think um, even if you have this panoply of different mechanisms, at least that means if you do want to provide only one or two access mechanisms, you've got the choice to do that now in a way that perhaps we were just limited to the physical PC, installing applications locally, and maybe having one or two applications delivered thinly through through the wire, through some sort of server-based computing environment. Yeah, but that also, also means that while you're adding flexibility for your users, you need to separate all the layers and manage them independently instead of managing a, 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 a PC or a laptop as a single entity. You need to manage the different sets of data. You well, I think things think station virtualization and persona virtualization are going to be a key element to doing all of this. So you're using each layer and, and that was something very much that we, we made sure we got through in that design chapter. I think if you're not doing that, you're not setting yourself up for what's coming next, but you're also going to make your, your journey into doing user computing, sort of VDI, VMware View solution a lot more difficult. Exactly. So there, there's a, there is a, a lot to be said about 
giving end users uh, the choice of accessing their data and applications through various methods. But it also means that the mindset of the uh, the IT department or IT services or whatever need to be more services based than rather than managing uh, devices. And that's also something that needs to, to change within the organizations to be able to actually provide the users with the different choices uh, and give them the freedom they want. So there's a lot of things to consider. consider uh, there's a new, uh, in, with end user computing uh, as a whole, but it doesn't mean you have to use uh, or take advantage of all the opportunities at once. At once, you need to start somewhere and then build from there. Uh, and the only way by doing that is to actually start off with a good base uh, with regards to management and then add services to it as your enterprise evolves, uh, as your applications uh, are rewritten or as your applications are being web enabled or whatever, and then tie it all together as, as you move along. I think there's going to be definitely a number of different ways to do that, and, and whatever happens, it's going to be uh, a complete shift in the way that we're, we're managing our desktop and errors um, from today, and, and hopefully it's going to uh, move us into a way that could be a lot more uh, flexible um, and, and work for the business a lot better. Yeah, and I think what I'd add to that is virtual desktops is just one aspect of, of delivering that solution and increasingly I see virtual desktops as a, a stepping stone to this new vision it's not the end game it's part of a, a process and hopefully by doing what Chris was pointing out separating out those layers separating the apps from the persona from the, the OS when it comes to making that move say you move away from using a traditional desktop with a start menu over to perhaps using a portal bay way of delivering those applications. Those applications are going to be that much more portable from one environment to another. And I guess, yes, everybody wants to look to a vision maybe of SaaS-based applications that are delivered over the web, things like Salesforce and whatnot. But I, I personally think that the, you know, the Windows executable that we still have around the, uh, at the moment will be around like a bad smell for, for some time and it will be up to us to support those applications alongside the new generation of applications that are out there. But I certainly see virtual desktops as, a, as an important stepping stone, maybe even a milestone to that, that new uh, way of delivering applications to end users. Okay guys, well with that in mind uh, I want to thank uh, Mike Laverick a lot for coming on and uh, Barry Combs. Thanks a lot guys. Thank you for having us. Um, wrap up uh, episode 25 here. You can check us out on vsoup.net, uh, iTunes, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening. <laughs>